0: I could do what I do on stage and it didn't matter what happened before it or after it, or what people were saying on message boards and stuff like that. Like I, when I was on the stage with a mic in front of the crowd, that was my time.
1: Everyone. Welcome to Comedy Girl Crush Podcast. I'm Kate Siegel.
2: I'm Nikki Irvin, and our guest today is the amazing Riley Jess Silverman. But before we get there, uh Nikki, how are you doing? I'm doing I'm doing really I'm doing really well, Kate. <laughs> I'm look like, I'm on a real upswing these days. I feel like Two weeks ago, in some change, I was like, oh, I hate my life. Like, <laughs> not really. I knew that I didn't actually hate my life, but I was having a, a PMDD. And mm. um, sometimes I get, like, I was like, just rolling panic attack crying in my bed so whenever I like I'm doing really well it's like oh I really am because I know what that
1: feels like to not be okay (laughs) uh is it so you get it every month then right oh yeah
2: every single month I like I have now just prepared myself that like I'm gonna have like one or two days that are gonna be like oh yeah i like to the point of like suicidal ideation so yeah. like I really like have to self-manage and like take care of myself in those moments. I was going to say moments. how do you
1: prep for that knowing that that's going to happen?
2: Um I usually actually you helped me a lot um oh. yeah you helped me uh during that because I was like I like I'm oh. going through a tough time and you were like real. you you were like you we can go easy on you on these things or so like like we can you know push things a little bit that you needed to get done like and oh, yeah so good to know yeah
1: i'm rarely helpful no so, but, <laughs>
2: <laughs> but but yeah i'm i'm doing i'm doing great i just got a new
1: boyfriend you mentioned that no. too early for names
2: oh no his name's jules board he's also he's somebody i met doing did you just go oh,
1: I know this person <laughs> uh
2: I met him like years ago uh from doing like you know comedy at the pack and we um we had done you know shows together and stuff and I think I always like was like oh you're too much of a like you're like a nice boy so and I nice. yes and I'm not gonna like I'm not gonna like mess you up I was like I'm too <laughs> fucked up for you uh and then um, I went on a, a trip, uh, a, a trip to Las Vegas to celebrate my friend Hooks' birthday mm-hmm. with like a great group of people. It was super fun, and Jules and I. Uh, were were sort of like the last people left to who were wanted to continue going swimming and I invited them to go down the shark slide (laughs) at the golden nugget and like after that like we just were talking in the line and then we like just kept talking and like throughout the rest of the night it was like oh oh hold on um yeah we just like oh wow this is great and just you know that thing that you, know, click, you just
1: clicked, just click just, just clicked.
2: yeah so that
1: thing where you can talk for seven hours and you don't even notice yes yeah it's uh,
2: it real real nice um
1: that's very cool that makes me very happy
2: <laughs> i'm glad <laughs> that seems to be the general consensus uh ironically i told him he doesn't have to listen to this podcast so he might not ever hear this conversation yeah yeah we uh we made a rule that he doesn't have to listen to my podcast if I don't have to watch his Zoom improv shows. So <laughs> it was like,
1: we're agreed there. That's a very nice pact. Yeah, yes. yeah. Uh,
2: Though, I mean, he should listen.
1: I was going to say, Lauren absolutely has to listen to the yeah. podcast. I yeah. quiz him the next day. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so what did they say about childhood trauma? <laughs> <laughs> You just got back from Vegas, right? I did. also did Meow Wolf. You guys did
2: that? The Omega Mart? I did not. You did not. Jules did. I did not. Okay. I think I opted for breakfast instead. Oh, Oh. fish and chips.
1: Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was like a choose-your-own-adventure trip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We went with a couple friend of ours, and uh, we we were it was a very like whirlwind trip we got there friday we were supposed to land at 10 o'clock you yeah, know this trip was kind of effed we were supposed <laughs> to land at 10 o'clock and we wound up landing at 1 30.
2: oh like p.m to a.m yeah p.m Ooh. to a.m
1: yeah we were supposed to land at 10 p.m and we ended up landing at 1 30 a.m on friday Oof. night and we were all kind of expecting to have like a first night out like at least go get a couple drinks or sort of yeah. thing and then both of us just texted they flew out of LAX we flew out of Burbank both of our flights were delayed but they still landed at like 11 Ah. o'clock and we were like still in Burbank at 11 (laughs) o'clock oh man Uh, but otherwise it was cool yeah we we did the Omega Mart which is like fun and then mostly we just ate I got really drunk on Saturday because it was our only day there uh, we went in the pool at our hotel, which was a wave pool, which Ooh. I will say when you're drunk, like a wave pool is kind of a good time because they only run the wave like it's like very intermittent. It's like once every one minute or sometimes every two minutes. So you never know when to expect it. And then you're just swimming in this pool. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, the wave. <laughs> exciting every time
2: (laughs) (laughs) what you got comedy wise coming up
1: nothing specific in the pipeline i am i'm writing i'm working on a web series with a friend of mine from the pack by Kabate. um Ah, nice uh, how about you what do you have coming up
2: um this of course um our podcast i'm also working on a screenplay and then um I am, this is very exciting. I really was just asking you what you're working on in comedy so I could brag about um, on September 1st, uh, my very first live show back. I actually did the math on it. And I was like, this is the longest that I haven't been on a stage since I was five years old. Was, is this period of time during the pandemic. So my very, I'm super excited because my very first show back on a stage is hosting i host a game show called pop cultured uh, we had started as a live show at the pack called setflix and then we moved we moved to twitch and uh then we started like zoom we tried to like a different couple different venues over the pandemic and our first live show back is september 1st at flappers and of course we have our judge uh jimmy pardo and our guests on it. our contestants are uh doug benson Lori kilmartin and blaine kapach and i'm like I'm so excited. Like I think Doug Benson was the first was maybe I think that was the first show that I ever saw in LA was Doug Benson Loves Movies.
1: Oh, very yeah. cool.
2: Yeah. So like this feels very like wild to me that I get to do a show that he's going to be on. He or not cancel.
1: This is huge.
2: This is huge. This
1: is huge. This
2: I feel very weird about it like
1: when do tickets go on sale for this?
2: They are on sale now at flappers.com/backslash burbank location. I don't know <laughs> I don't know if that's really it.
1: <laughs> that's super exciting. Yo. I'm very happy for you. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Yeah. It's very like
1: What a cool sh- first show back. Yeah. Speaking of yeah. cool. <laughs> We're going to talk about a uh, raffle. This is a new thing we're doing. You may have noticed this is also a new segment. We're changing up the format of the podcast a little bit. And part of that is at the end of every episode, we are going to be promoting a raffle. Uh, this month's raffle is going to be the prize we are offering is a copy of Madison Shepard's comedy album, Good Night Silver Lake Lounge.
2: Yes. And all you have to do in order to be entered into this raffle is rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Yeah. Super simple. Yeah. Sally. Just five stars cuz you know that's <laughs> what it
1: is. <laughs>
2: hey, Kate, yeah. let's get right into our interview with Riley. Riley, it is so amazing to have you on the program today. Um you are uh just incredible. Uh you <laughs> like I love your Twitter. I love like all of your nerd your nerd stuff, all your opinions. I think are spot on. Um it's so cool to have you. I'm done talking.
0: Forever. Thank you. I that was very flattering. It's very nice to open up a show, <laughs> hearing how great you are. So thank you. I, I can go now. I can wrap up. That's all I needed to hear. <laughs> <I mean.
1: laughs> we explicitly invite people on to flatter them and tell them how much we love them
2: and have crushes on them. And we have a big old crush on you. Ooh, oh, yeah. yeah. So you are a writer for Nerdist. Uh, you do Ripley Improv, and then uh, the thing I think we're very super excited about is your uh, episode of Celebrity d yeah. dropped on Nerdist this week and you got to, inter- uh, to play D&D with the cast of Suicide Squad.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: How was that?
0: It was wild. It's one of the most random things I've ever gotten to do. It was very much a, like, I got, I had a, a DM in my my, bo- my inbox from, from Dan Casey who runs the video stuff over at Nerdist and he was just like, hey, do you want to play D&D with the cast of Suicide Squad this Sunday? I'm like, yes. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh. I, I basically only had them for about 40 minutes, and I had to, in that 40 minutes, uh, it was Flu Borg, Nathan Fillion, and Michael Rooker, and I had to run them through a little mini D&D campaign in that, like, 40 minutes that I had them, and that included, like, saying hello, getting them set up, figuring out who the characters were, and then just, like, launching into it, so uh, it was- And it was how something.
1: long- how long does a, no, a normal D&D campaign last? Oh,
0: they can go for hours. Like, I yeah, yeah. I do a show on Saving Throw Show. That's a and d show. And we do two-hour shows. And we're pretty on the lower end of that. So, And, like, a lot of times podcasts will be an hour. But they usually are edited down after, like, a couple hours of play. So they'll cut out a lot of, like, the um dice rolls and stuff that would take a lot of time up. Or, like, a lot of the people thinking about what they're going to do, they'll cut that out and just, like, get the momentum going. But like Critical Role, which is kind of the gold standard of D and D shows, they'll have episodes that are four to five hours. In fact, they recently did their finale of their second campaign, and that was a seven-hour live stream. Which is Whoa. Well, oh my gosh. Well, they pre-recorded it because they're doing pre-recorded during COVID, but still, it was seven hours of live recorded show, and it still it's bonkers to me that someone could like. Like I it took me like I watched it the night before and I I went to bed during it and then I like finished it the next day when it was being rerun. Like in that morning I put it on and finished the other part that I had seen I had missed out on. So
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's like two Titanics. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Or or one, um oh shoot, what was that?
0: the
2: right. Uh, Wait, the Irishman. The-, the Irishman. Yes, thank you. It was like, One, the Irishman. One,
1: the Irishman. It's Nicholas
0: Nickleby on Broadway. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so you had to do everything that you would do in a normal campaign in forty-five minutes. Uh,
0: yeah, I mean, it was definitely a much. It was very, a very like slimmed down campaign. So it was definitely a very shorter session. It would because D and D campaigns can go on for months and months and years. And yeah. I know some people who've oh, had wow. like the same group that's been playing for like four or five years or more. So, you know, but there are a lot of D&D games can be called what are called one shots where it's all a self-contained story that's, that ends in the one sitting. So I definitely ran a one shot and it basically just, there's a a and it's a storyline that's in the starter kit for D&D. And so I ran that, but instead of running it from the point of view of the heroes that the players normally play as, I, I played it from like the villain's point of view that like kick, like, it, so when you, when you very begin the starter kit for d and the like sample campaign that comes with it is this campaign called Lost Minds of Phandelver. And at the very beginning of it, your party gets ambushed by goblins who have kidnapped the people who hire you and you have to like chase after them and, and like rescue them. And so I had them play as the goblins who kidnapped those two people. And so that <laughs> was kind of, the, and it just fit for me with the suicide squad angle and the fact that I knew they were going to be a chaos crew. So I just was like you guys y'all are three goblins and you're trying to kidnap these two people and have at it. So,
2: oh my goodness. So if I've if I've never played D&D, would watching this show be like a good introduction into it? Oh,
0: I don't think so at all. No, no, no. <laughs> I think I, it, it might be a little bit. Like it might give you a really stripped down idea of like what a D&D okay. game is, but like they, you know, like I said, they so I think I was telling you this off night like, before we started, but basically the way that we did it was they were doing their press junket for Suicide Squad. And for those who don't know what press junkets are, it's it's essentially if you've ever seen an interview about someone talking about their upcoming movie and they're sitting in a room next to like a poster of their movie, they're probably at a press junket. Nowadays, they've been doing them online through Zoom because of, I don't know if y'all heard, but there was like a thing happening. Um, in the last oh, year I think I heard so that, yeah. so we did this press show get, so they had been answering questions all day to press and the media and then suddenly my face pops up and I'm like y'all ready to play some D&D and we played D&D for 40 minutes and we didn't talk about Suicide Squad at all so it was just a fun, silly, like, promo thing that we did.
2: Oh my gosh. I bet that was so fun for them.
0: Yeah, I think they liked it. I think the funniest thing about it is when I first start talking about it, you can even see it in the video, is that Nathan Fillion is actually, like, very excited about it. And you can tell he, like, really wants to play D&D. And then Fula Borg and Michael Rooker are just such agents of chaos. That they do not <laughs> let, it, like they play it, but they 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 throw it off the rails every possible chance they can.
2: <laughs> That's pretty perfect. Um, did you play did you play D and D when you were a kid?
0: I didn't play D and D when I was a kid, but I played other tabletop role playing games, which is like what D and D is. I was really mm-hmm. into a game when I was a teenager called uh, Werewolf the Apocalypse, and there's also a game called ah. Vampire the Masquerade, and those were all kind of in the same like they're all from the same publisher and they're kind of set in the same modern day gothic horror universe.
2: Yeah. So I played
0: a lot of that when I was that age. I didn't really play D&D proper until I was a little bit older. I played like clones of D&D. There was, like was a whole bunch of games in the like 90s that were like takeoffs on D&D or D&D style games. I played some of those in the 90s and the 2000s. I didn't really get into actual D&D. I played a couple times, but I didn't truly deep dive into it the way that I have in the last several years until a few years ago when the fifth edition came out and it kind of started getting a little bit more notoriety because there's a really big intimidation factor, like like a gap uh, at the very beginning of starting to play it where you feel like, oh, I can't do good at this game because I don't really know what I'm doing. And then yeah. it takes a little while to get over that. And then once you do, you realize, oh, nobody playing this game knows what they're doing. And we're all kind of just having fun <laughs> as we go along. And I kind of like self kept for a long time about it because of yeah, that and then when i actually yeah. like let myself into it it was like oh my god this is actually super welcoming and super fun and exciting and like there are definitely like any hobby there are garbage people who will get keep yeah. you and be obnoxious about it but like they're not fun to play with anyway so <laughs> people who are fun to play with are super welcoming and actually love bringing in new players and seeing that excitement as people like learn this stuff for the first time and
2: yeah that's really good to know i always i always wanted to play D. um but I think the same thing, like I self gatekeep on myself where I'm like, I don't, I'm not enough. I don't know enough to even start <laughs> like, yeah. and I played a few like. Um, I like to do the, uh, I've gone on a couple, like, podcaster, like, shows. Like, I was on Game of the Game as, like, oh, the person who's doing an RPG, uh, tabletop RPG, but who knows nothing about tabletop RPGs. Yeah. And it was always, it was really, really fun because the people there, yeah, you're right. It was, like, you know, like, Becca was really, uh, Becca Scott, who uh, was the host of Game of the Game, really nice about it and did not make me feel, like, it was, like, oh, there's a purpose for you here as well because people do like to, like, teach. Yeah you and I guess it's just everything right like everything has that like beginner you feel like crap uh, <laughs> thing trying to like that gap of knowledge yeah
1: like I was as you were saying that it was making me think about I think that a lot of people have that relationship with comedy right is totally. like they weren't like a comedian when they were growing up or knew what they were doing like they felt you know weird about trying to do comedy and I think you know there's a lot there's a lot of similarities in there. Or at least in my experience, I think that was the thing I kept from myself the most, which is like actually trying comedy.
2: Ooh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's actually a great transition. Let's talk about what it was like growing up and when you figured out that you wanted to do comedy. Um, so you grew up in Ohio. Yeah. Uh, what uh, what was, I guess, what was that, what was that like? Did that... Uh influence
0: you it's hard to be like oh here's what being from ohio influenced in my comedy because i don't really know i I don't know what else you know like there's lots of people from ohio they didn't all become comedians so i don't know if like being ohio specifically makes you be a comedian but i grew up in like kind of a suburb that ate a rural area like i i grew up like on the very border of like there was there was always a farm behind my house for a long time until it became subdivision later on in my life and then, like, the very, like, the, the the town that I grew up in was called Pickerington, and it used to, like, the joke was, like, Picktown, Hicktown. And we were on the, like, we were the last, like, suburban area on the outskirts of Columbus, Ohio, before it just became rural farmland. But, like, slowly our rural farmland became this kind of affluent suburb. And so it was very strange to see it happen. And so that was an interesting thing. And so I was a very, and my, I grew up as the child of, like, a pretty stalwart like labor union person. My dad was like the vice president of the AFL CIO in Columbus, Ohio and Franklin County, and was always very like pro-labor and pro-unions. And so I grew up in a very like democrat household, right? But I lived in an area that was extremely what we would now call red. Like it was it was very Republican. It was very conservative. And it's because of the combination of like Affluent suburbanites who would vote Republican, but also like set in their ways, rural, like farm type town people. So I always felt a little bit like the outsider. Like I remember like there was always like a Republicans club, like a young Republicans club at my school. There was no young Democrats club at that era. Like that kind of thing would happen. And also I was like a closeted trans kid. And I never came out during school. So I always had it's one of those things where you're like you're not out. But people know there's something weird about you, and they torment you because of it, even though they they can't quite put their finger on it, but they just know. That's like this phenomenon that I think a lot of closeted kids understand, and especially maybe trans kids, because you're always kind of inside yourself. You're kind of playing a character a little bit, so you're always off to everybody. And that's not maybe the case for every trans person. I'm sure some people were like, no, it was great. I just didn't want to be that person. But, you know, whatever. That was my experience with being and then the, especially in the like 80s and 90s where it wasn't really talked about as much yet so a, yeah a lot of language around queerness was still pretty new like i remember when ellen came out it was a really big deal and we didn't really talk about people being gay until then around my area at least when we had like teachers who were closet, who were like not closet. I, I had like a teacher who was essentially married to another woman who was a teacher at a different school and it was like a big deal when you'd see them out in public together like did you hear their people like other kids like whisper about it and mock it so That's kind of the environment that I grew up in. And so I was always a little bit of a weirdo. And I did a lot of theater stuff, but I was never, like, the lead. I was never, like, the main character or anything. I was always, like, very small parts or people in the background. But I would be, like, comedic roles and character roles. And so Mm -hmm. I I think I gravitated towards comedy because of that. And I just loved comedy movies. And I also devoured that early, like, heyday of Comedy Central present specials. Where it was all those half-hour specials that aired in like the late '90s and like early 2000s, and I remember the like also Dana Carvey had this hour special called Critics' Choice that I was obsessed with, and we would we would quote it at school, like we would sit in the theater room and we would just go through the entire Dana Carvey special because it was on Comedy Central all the time, and so that was kind of like the like the diet that I was being fed of the stuff that I was consuming was all these comedy movies and stand-up specials and stuff like that, and then because I wasn't ever given like lead roles in the shows at school, I kind of always felt like, okay, well no one's ever going to give me this kind of stuff. So I need to like find my own space on stage. And so then Mm. I I knew that I wanted to do stand up, And I remember the special particularly that really like strangely like made me just watching a special, like this is what I'm going to do. And it was David Spade's special, take the hit that was on HBO. And I remember going like, yeah, I'm going to do this. And then I had, when I had gotten into college, I graduated in 2000 and I had gotten into college at Ohio University, which is in Athens, Ohio, which is kind of in the middle of nowhere. It's a very small, it's a very much college town, like a town and gown kind of college town. And I kind of had this last minute feeling of like, no, I want to go to school in an urban area. So then I like switched to Ohio state last minute and then i I started going and i was I was commuting to school instead of going off to college and I started doing it took me a few months about about six months of being in college to actually work at the nerve to try stand up so in my freshman year, it was February of my freshman year, so it was actually twenty years ago this year that I went to my Ooh. first open mic and and tried it, and i just I loved it immediately and it was it was really hard at first but I had a pretty natural affinity for it to begin with. Like I, I I excelled pretty quickly in my local scene. Like I I did really well in a couple of comedy contests that we had and I like it, it within like the first 6 months of doing it, I had won a spot as a house MC at the Funny Bone in Columbus. So that really kind of like pushed me up quickly. And then I kind of stayed in that spot for a really long time. Like I I struggled with Taking it from the, like, I think that I like it's, it's almost like gifted kid syndrome where, like, you spend so much time yeah. and then you get to the level and you don't really know how to do the work to move up to the next spot. So I never like, really mm-hmm. moved up to where I wanted to go. And then I also, during that time period, like the first, I'd say, like, decade that I was doing stand up, I was extremely struggling with my identity because I knew that I was, like, yeah. you know, trans, but I didn't know how to, like, word that or how to, I didn't see a path for myself to. Live as myself and be out openly as myself, and also continue to do comedy, like like yeah. Eddie Izzard had cut, was 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 around, like she was already out doing comedy, but she was still identifying as as using male pronouns at the time, and also using the word transvestite, which was very different right. than how I identified. But like because like I saw her special dress to kill, I think that was ninety nine two thousand when that came out, so that was like a very formative special for me in that era of my life, and I devoured it. But I never thought of it as something that I could do for myself. So I didn't come out until like 2009. So I had been doing comedy at that point for about eight years before I finally came out. Was
2: that like, was that like kind of a game changer for you? Of like...
0: Yeah, Yeah. it was kind of actually the culmination of a game changer. I had kind of had this period about the year leading up to that where my act... So my act had always been very joke oriented it was always very like i'm a clever writer kind of comedy and i used to be like kind of adamant about it like kind of like stubborn Mm -hmm. of like it's my personality doesn't matter it's jokes the jokes are great the jokes are solid i'm a great joke writer and yeah i i realized it took it took me until about a year before i came out to really start putting my personality in my i had like some real life experiences that i then i think as i started so young and i didn't have any life experience to write about so it was just, all I had was my ability to write jokes, right? So then when I finally did start living some real life experience, I started putting that personal stuff into my act and that started really like resonating with people and suddenly my comedy became so much more about me as a person instead of these like, I'm a great joke writer, you know? Like if Twitter yeah. had been around when I was, like early Twitter when it was a fun place to go and make jokes, around like when <laughs> I first started comedy, I think I would have killed on Twitter. But then I hit a point where I finally started really being personal and that was working a lot more for me. But then I kind of hit this wall where I was like, well, how honest can you be on stage if you're hiding this big part of who you are? But then I had this big dilemma because most of the gigs that I was doing then were these like, r- like rural one nighter gigs and bars in the middle of these like small towns in Ohio and Michigan and, Illinois and Indiana and they weren't places where I felt like oh I can totally talk about being super queer on these shows so I was like afraid that I would lose all these gigs and then I had this gig where I went to it was um, Hannibal Missouri the birthplace of of Mark Twain and I it was like an eight-hour drive there and back that my my, my, friend of mine and I did together and I remember going there and it was just like the most mediocre gig possible. It wasn't even like bad because there wasn't like enough interest for it to be bad. Like <laughs> they like had people come in, but like there was almost like they didn't, they just, everyone was bored. They didn't want to be there. And there was like no way to win them over. And like I had a bad set and the other guy had a bad set. And I remember like we were driving back and it was like three in the morning and I'm driving. He's asleep in the car. I'm driving through Indianapolis heading back to Ohio. And I kind of just had this moment of like am I really afraid that I'm going to lose these gigs if I come out as trans? (laughs) So, yeah, that's kind of what finally, like, clicked into place. And then I kind of slowly started the process of coming out. It took me a few more years to fully come out in transition. I did, like, a lot of, like, a period of time where I lived kind of in between where I was afraid to use the word trans. Like, I didn't think I'd earned it or I didn't think I deserved it. I felt like, because there was a lot of, I'm sorry that I'm, like, digressing a lot, but there was a lot of gatekeeping about what constituted being transgender in the like 90s especially in early 2000s like online Mm -hmm. there was these really strict ideas about well if you don't follow exactly there was literally a ts roadmap transsexual roadmap that was online that was like this is what you have to be doing if you're kind of someone who wants to transition otherwise you're just a crossdresser like that was kind of how it was like hammered into me And so for a long time, I identified as a cross-dresser because I didn't know how else to find myself. And then for a while, I played with terms like non-binary and gender fluid because those were pretty new and they made a lot of sense. But then I had a kind of traumatic thing where I got assaulted. And through that process, I kind of realized that those were all barriers that I was putting up to keep myself safe. But then when they didn't work, I kind of was like, I'm done. I'm done trying to keep myself protected. I'm just going to be who I am from now on. And then I slowly started the process of actually transitioning.
2: Were you in Los Angeles by that point?
0: Yeah, I moved to L.A. in 2010. And so I was doing comedy. (laughs) Yeah, uh, cool. I was doing comedy (laughs) for, it was funny because there was about two years where I was doing comedy where sometimes I would do shows in women's clothing and there are times I wouldn't. And people are so, it's, it's fascinating how much when you're queer or you're unusual looking, that's all people see of you. Because mm-hmm. I would go to shows and the only well, they ever seeing myself in one show or the other was I might have makeup on or a skirt or something. And people legitimately thought that I was two different comedians and one of us would see on the other one's act because they just didn't see me as the other person. It was like actually really oh, funny. Wow. And it took, it took me a lot of people a long time to realize that I was the same person, even though I never changed my stage name or anything. But
2: you're actually the first well, I guess I guess now we know about Eddie Izzard, but you're the first trans comedian that I knew or like was in the community um and honestly you opened up a lot of doors for people uh genuinely like i know people who have you know come out since you came out and you you opened up those doors for them to like know that oh yes yes this is this is <laughs> this is okay like uh i don't know I, I think that's a i think that's amazing because there's so much uh, danger <laughs> you know like there can't well there can be so much danger and so i think that's amazing well thank you i start. I it's, yeah. it's,
0: it's weird me to think of it that way because i feel like they i mean it's it's nice to feel that way i don't i, I it's like humbling <laughs> in a way i i'm actually sometimes i'm kind of jealous of people who started later and actually kind of like started after they were able to kind of come out and be themselves to begin with because i feel like for me it really like it definitely torpedoed the act that I was doing then. And it kind of torpedoed my career. I I kind of had to like start over from scratch. And I think I said the next, the next half of my career kind of almost as if I had started from brand new. And and in a way that was exhilarating, you know, as an artist, it's really fun to kind of have to like rebuild your voice on stage and, and like learn what you're doing. Um, I think I eventually kind of burned out on a little bit. I think there was a certain point Mm -hmm. where I felt like I had painted myself into a corner where I could only talk about being trans on stage, but I also yeah. didn't want to anymore because also I could feel people like deciding for themselves that they couldn't relate to what I was talking about even when I was saying things that were pretty universal and like clicking off. And maybe I like you know, there are people who are doing it still and are doing great, so I don't want to say it can't be done, but I felt like the diminishing returns. I felt like I was working I was I was working uphill to where it kind of stopped being enjoyable for me a little bit.
1: You have this really funny joke in your on your stand-up album that's just like a really quick joke where you say, I live in LA, which is supposedly more progressive or something like that. And it's just that supposedly, like I was saying to Nikki earlier, your comedy that album in particular, feels very timeless. Like everything you're saying on that album could be said yesterday, like literally yesterday and it would still be relevant. And I think especially that supposedly, cause like, I think people more and more now we see it, it's like more apparent now to a lot of people because of the way that our city officials are handling a lot of the city problems. We're like, Oh, being liberal doesn't actually mean what we thought it meant or whatever. And I feel like, you have a very unique perspective on that. Like you were thinking about that in 2015 uh, and that's like something you were feeling that early. And it, it's very oh. cool to me. Thank you. I mean, yeah, cool to me I... to like, see, has to hear that observation. Sorry, it's not cool that LA sucks.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's, that comes from being someone who, I, I think that LA has only in the last couple of years really started to come around on like trans stuff. And so I think that I felt it, I felt like an outsider in LA at a time, like, I mean, you know, not to get too dark, but I got, I got physically assaulted in Los Angeles for being trans. Like I was targeted. So it's, it's frustrating whenever people talk about, like, I, I got really mad one time online cause I was talking about something, something I can't remember what even set it up. There was a, a gay man from the, from the middle of the country who like was calling me privileged for being in Los Angeles where it's safe to be queer And I was like, I've literally been assaulted here. Like, don't tell me where it's safe to be me. Like, it's not. Like, people think that coastal cities are more safe, but there's also a lot more people and a lot more mixed ideas. And so you can definitely still have a lot of violent things towards you. Like, it it was really frustrating for me at that point. But so, yeah, that album is really interesting because I talked about earlier about my early material that was very observational and a lot of that is on the album. The album is very much kind of a half and half. It's half a collection of my favorite bits from when I was first starting comedy and then like my favorite bits that I was doing at the time I recorded the album and I actually structured it on purpose as like a journey through my timeline a little bit. So it's really fun to look back on that now because I've also, I've grown so much since I recorded that. So I think even things that are on the album about myself feel really dated, but it's fun to hear that like certain things about it are still so timeless. So... Thank you.
2: Yeah. Very cool. You're So you're also part of Ripley Improv. Like, when did you start branching out of stand-up only and into other things like improv and, you know, sketch and I don't know. Do you do, do characters, though?
0: Not really. I, I
2: realize I haven't really seen you do anything.
0: Every time I tried to do a character, they didn't really hit very well. So I just kind of didn't try to keep doing it. But I moved to L.A. intentionally at the time. At the time when I moved to L.A., UCB was like the king of alternative weird, like, like, of, like, non-mainstream yeah. comedy, I should say. And I I moved to LA because of UCB, because all the comedians on podcasts that I was a giant fan of were affiliated with UCB, like Paul F. Tompkins and Maria Bamford and Jackie Cation and Jimmy Pardo and and Jen Kirkman and people like that. And so I really wanted to be part of that group of people. And so that's kind of why I came to LA. And then... I started taking classes at UCB for several years. And that's another situation where nobody else was openly trans at the time when I was going there. And I, I would say that like I felt way more like put in a box there than I did in stand-up with it. And so I spent about two years doing it. And I had a lot of bad situations of transphobia or like people thinking they were funny and clever and, and doing things that were kind of cruel. And so I, I fell out of it. And I didn't think that I was welcome in improv for a long time because of it. Because I was I was explicitly told by, like, coaches and, like, UCB teachers and people like that, that I I couldn't go on stage looking unusual like I do because that would distract the audience from anything I was doing in scenes and stuff like that. So that was really tough as someone who can't help but look unusual or live in the closet. That's, like, the only two options that I had. So I kind of ran back to stand-up for a long time. And it was kind of the mentality of, well, when I'm on stage doing stand-up, I control everything. I, I control the conversation. So I can be whatever mm-hmm. I want to be on stage. And I didn't do improv for a really long time. And this was like 2011, 2012 when I made that decision. So that, like, it was kind of weird. Like, oh, the thing that I came to LA to do doesn't want me. So I'm not going to try to do it anymore. Um, and I just did my own thing instead for a long time. But then, a couple of years ago i cut two two things kind of happened. One is that a lot of other trans people started going through the u c b system and kind of softening that a little bit and the overall like indie improv scene that kind of grew up around it. so other places started popping up a lot of like more like, indie stuff, and there were spaces like like the clubhouse and the and the pack and places like that that weren't defined by one specific theater space. And, like, IO shut down and things like that happened. And so there seemed to be a little bit more of an excitement to have diversity in the scene and stuff like that. So then people like like Hayley Mancini and Jeannie Ippolito invited me to do uh, SketchCram as an actor. And it was great to be able to do scenes in sketch Cram where I wasn't playing, like, a, a trans woman. It was just like, yeah. this is a character that you're playing. Here you go. Have at it. I I even played a character who was like pregnant in one of the scenes that I did. So it was like really cool to have that as like a thing. And it was like one of the first times I performed where I didn't feel like my identity was being defined by who I looked like on stage. But just like we're doing this fun sketch show and everyone's just going for it. And it's fine. And then another big thing that happened was me finding tabletop role playing again and as a performative thing because I had taken a break from it for a long time. I played it all the way through and even after college. And then I started like, I stopped doing it for a long time because I thought that it was conflicting with like my creative process. Like all oh, I'm spending time thinking of characters and games instead of doing stand-up. I had no idea at the time when I said that, that it could be like its own career later on in life. But I think that, tabletop role-playing games as a performance art really helped me to get back into improv as a thing that I could do. And then I met several of the other Ripley's doing a show with them. We were on a show together called called rat Queens and it was a show on hyper RPG. It's based on a comic book. And I, I played, there's a trans character in the comic book named Braga and I played her on the show. And so I was on the show with three of the Ripley's, um, Uh, Jessica Lynn Verde, uh, Laurie Jones, and Aliza Pearl. And then around that time, Ripley was starting to do this really awesome, like, conceptual improv show called Encounter. And it was like an hour-long science fiction improv show that could be funny, but wasn't, like, necessarily the pure intent of it. And it was based around fiction like Alien, but also like Arrival or...
2: Annihilation? Yes.
0: So it's based on this idea of like a main female character who has this unusual encounter with something of the unknown, either an alien or a monster or whatever. So that was the idea of their show. And they would have no real script and they'd have no preconceived idea. They would just get a suggestion from the audience and they would start the show and it was amazing. And they asked me to be a guest star in like one of their final shows of that run. So I did that. And then last summer during lockdown, they invited me to do some Zoom RP, like, not Zoom RPG, Zoom improv with them. They did a, a series of Zoom improv shows based on, on like YA novel concepts called Wasteland, as in like Teenage Wasteland. So that was really fun. And then, yeah, then they invited me and several others to join the official roster back in back in uh January I think it was this year so yeah my journey back into improv was very much like finally feeling like I was welcome in it because I for a long time I I didn't feel welcome and then I probably stayed away out of stubbornness longer than I wasn't welcome anymore like I was probably welcome for a long time (laughs) but I like was so mad about how I was treated and how I experienced it that I I didn't let myself enjoy being back into it but luckily people which yeah
1: I feel like that's totally fair, right? Like it's hard. To, I I can only imagine how hard it is to get over feeling like you're like explicitly not welcome in a community. And I'm just gonna say, to have stand-up be the more welcoming community <laughs> is not a good look. Well, I don't know yeah. if I think that
0: standup's more welcoming community because I think part of why I haven't been doing it as much lately is because I feel like it's not as welcoming as it used to be. Oh, okay, but I okay. also mm. think it's just because I think as a form. I knew it so well, and I felt so in control of it that I was able to to do what i like like I could do what I do on stage, and it didn't matter what happened before it or after it or what people were saying on message boards and stuff like that like i when I was on the stage with a mic in front of the crowd, that was my time, and that was my ability to i could i and I knew how to control the room so
2: yeah. But so now you're uh before the we started the interview, you were saying that you were taking an indefinite break from doing stand up. Uh, tell us about that. Like what made you decide to take a break from it? And like, how are you feeling?
0: Uh, it kind of comes to what I said earlier about feeling like I was kind of painted into this corner where I didn't feel like I had a lot mm-hmm. more control anymore over what I could talk about and when. And I felt like I wasn't having fun with it anymore. And that mm-hmm. was the thing. I'm, I'm again, I'm sure. That like a younger, hungrier version of me would have found a way to talk about what she wanted to talk about on stage. But Mm -hmm. I felt like I started having a level of anxiety about going on stage that I hadn't had since I was in my early 20s when I was first starting. That slowly made it less and less fun each time to do it. And I was dreading every show that I was going to do ahead of time in a way that I never had in a long time. And I just had this like it was really starting to drain on me, and I would I would I would try I would I would hope that shows would get canceled so I wouldn't have to do them. And then I actually the last I had a show that ended up having ended up having a blast at, and I I really had a lot of fun. And then the next day, my father passed away, and. Not that I think like that's a weird segue, but that's the last time I remember being doing a show where like, I'm, I was like, I don't want to be here, I don't want to be here. And then I did it, and it was great. And then the next day, my dad passed away, and I had to go to Ohio and deal with that. And then I just didn't want to get on stage for a while. And then the next show that I had booked was a show in Ohio that I would do every year at Christmas time. That my friend Nikki booked back, a different Nikki, uh, booked, spelled (laughs) differently, uh, booked in Ohio that was called Holodames. And the whole idea was it was a bunch of women doing comedy at Christmas time, And it was kind of an excuse for all the women who had left town to come back and do a show together every year, especially me. And I usually headlined it. My dad usually came every year, too. And so the rest of that, like, couple of months, like, my dad died in early November. I was like, I don't want to do the holiday show this year because I don't want to do this show that my dad always came to that he wouldn't be at. And I finally told Nikki, who ran the show, I'm like, hey, I don't want to headline this show this year. I'll do it. But I want to do a show, a, a, a shorter set earlier in the night so that if I don't feel like I can do it, I can drop out and, and I don't I'm, I'm not ruining the whole show. And also so I don't have to like deal with the whole thing. And. Yeah, that ended up being fine, but it was very hard to do. And I only, I think I did stand-up two more times after that. And, but, like, once was at a con, it was a a Doctor Who con that I go to every year. And it was a gig that I had booked the year earlier. So, I, like, long before my dad even got sick. And before my dad even had, like, his, like, hospital stays. And, yeah, between, I I, I did one other show at The Good Night in Burbank. And it was one where... Like I said I was so anxious beforehand and I went on stage and normally I'm very good at channeling my anxiety into energy on stage and using it and like riffing and having fun with it and that night like every trick in my book failed and I just ate it on stage and I had a miserable time and I like got mad about it and I just wasn't having fun and yeah I just you know I remember when I was younger doing comedy and I would talk to people about it. And I would say, like, if you think you could be happy doing anything else, like you should just do that. Because this is like a thing that like will it, it requires so much of yourself and you have to put so much of yourself into it that if you're not getting that return, like don't make yourself miserable for years hoping you'll be successful. Because even if you do get successful, like you spent decades of your life being miserable. So what was what was the point of it? And so I really had like a, you know, to use the phrase, a come to Jesus moment at that point in my life where I I'm like, you haven't been excited to do this in at least six months. So why are you still doing it? Like, what what is it that you think is going to happen that's gonna make any of this misery you've been going through worth it? And I was like, and you're really enjoying doing these RPG shows, you're really enjoying the writing. I was doing a lot of writing at the time, and I was like really getting into my writing. And also I, I was writing a lot for websites. I was writing for Sci-Fi Wire. I was writing for Nerdist, and and I was kind of like, wow, I'm I'm getting so much more fulfillment out of this writing, and also like my like my writing partner and I were working on a like, film script. So there was all this like stuff that was happening that wasn't stand up that was fulfilling me a lot more, and so I kind of had this moment of, why don't you take a break from the thing that you already know you were good at, but maybe you aren't. Finding what you want out of it anymore, and instead try these different paths, like why don't you try something different for a little while and so then I haven't done stand up since then and it's uh, I, and honestly, I'll say like I think a really telling thing for me is that we're on the other end of this pandemic now, and you know it's not back to normal yet. we're something with a lot of like delta concerns, and it's gonna be a long road, but there are live stand up shows starting to happen again. And I, I have no desire to. And I, not once during the entire pandemic that I missed doing it. Like, I, I know some people who did. I know some people who were, like, going out of their mind, like, Zoom shows don't fulfill me and those kinds of things. But it, for mm-hmm. me, the idea of doing stand-up over Zoom sounded horrifying. And I was even asked a couple times to do it. And I was like, no, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And But now that Zoom shows are wrapping up a bit more and, and more live shows are happening, I still don't feel that at all. So. And I I know that myself in my 20s would have been chomping at the bit during the pandemic to get back on stage. Like, I I used to be someone where if I didn't get on stage within a week of the last time I was on stage. I'd start getting irritable and, and jittery and kind of hard to be around sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I, <laughs> I, I don't know. I feel like whatever passion I used to have for it, like, I don't want to say it died with my dad. But, like, it, well, I lost something there. Sorry.
2: It's okay. Thank you for telling us about this. Yeah. <laughs> like,
0: thank you for sharing this. Um, it's, a, it's a weird, it's weird. Cause like I, for a long time, I would say like, well, I'm not a comedian anymore. And I remember it was actually, one time I was talking to Hooks and I said something about like, well, I'm not, I'm, I guess I'm comedy adjacent. And they were like, why do stand-ups think that if you're not doing stand up, you're not doing comedy anymore? They were like, you're still mm-hmm. doing comedy. They're like, you're writing funny things. You're, you're doing improv. You're doing this RPG. It's like, you're still doing comedy. And they were like, it's so ridiculous that you think you're not a comedian anymore because you're not doing the exact genre of comedy you started in the same medium you started in.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> that's accurate. You're like, and it sounds like you've got really, really exciting things that you that totally align with who you are and, and your writing style. Um.
1: I know you are. I mean, you're working on multiple podcasts, right? And like you are writing constantly and then you get these really incredible opportunities like. I'm floored by the amount that you've done in your career. And, like, it's you have had an incredibly impressive comedy career. Thank
2: you. And it is
1: just like an honor to get to talk to you about it. It,
2: it. it really is. Uh, so now uh, the, we're coming up towards the end of the interview, um, but we do have—we're starting a new segment, uh, and it's uh... so
1: okay. Since you have the improv background, we're doing a, these are five things, but we're just asking you like five personal, like targeted personal questions. Okay.
2: These are five things. So our first question is: um, What is your biggest influence? Jim Henson.
1: Ooh.
0: Ooh. that's good. Yeah, I
1: really like that one. Do you have a favorite Muppet?
0: Gonzo. Gonzo. <laughs>
1: yeah. Hell yeah, yeah. Best moment in comedy, and then worst moment in comedy.
0: Okay, I think best moment in comedy was probably coming out on stage. That was really fun Ooh. and interesting to do. That was like exciting. Like it was like, it was like my my Everest. That was a uh, like something yeah. I never something that I didn't think that I would ever do when I started comedy. So. That was probably my best moment. Uh I think my worst really cool. moment in comedy was I think there was one night where I did a I did a gig in Mich in like up like high not, not upstate Michigan, but like not like upper peninsula, but like pretty high up in the like lower peninsula. Yeah. And so I I got up the next morning and I drove all the way back down to Columbus. Because I was doing a comedy festival in Columbus, and then that night I was doing a there. There is this open mic when I first started comedy in Columbus called the Northburg, and it was this just dingy little basement bar that was under a Donato's pizza, which was a, which was a chain of pizza places in the in Columbus. But they had a so bar good. underneath it where we did stand up, and it closed at one point about two or three years into my doing comedy, and then this night, like. Somebody had convinced the the Donato's Pizza to let them reopen the basement and do a big special like Northburg reunion show, and it was like a big deal. So I went and did it, and I didn't get on stage until like two in the morning. So at this point, I hadn't I I hadn't slept since about five that morning because I had gotten up to drive downtown. So I was on stage, and I completely forgot any material that I had ever written or performed ever in my life, which was something that I had like anxiety dreams about, like being on stage not knowing how to do any <laughs> material. But I was on stage and i just I couldn't even remember how to form a joke i i just I, I just i just i remember being on stage and just feeling so isolated and so alone and not being able to even like and, and just like say, i don't I don't know what to do I don't know to say. like i i had like just this like deer in the headlights moment and and not being able to remember <laughs> any of my act at, at all and not being able to riff or anything and just being stuck doing it so that I think. That, that's probably my worst moment on stage, not counting times where, like, drunk idiots would, like, try to charge the stage or, like, throw drinks and stuff like that. But that, I think that's probably my worst thing that ever happened to me. Like, that's, like, defined by my comedy.
1: Yeah, Uh that's the stuff of nightmares, truly. True. Uh, (laughs) Low-key, that is uh,
2: the reason I don't do stand-up, because I don't trust my own memory. Um, Okay, what do you want to do that you haven't done yet?
0: What do I want to do that I haven't done yet? Um... And I I was going to say like two things I've done, but I think I, I I said like, Oh, I want to be on a sitcom, but I have been in a sitcom. Uh, and I, I was gonna say, I want to be in a movie, but I've been in a movie. So I guess I want to write something. That's going to be like, I want to write, like I want to, I think I want to be, I want at least some experience being in a room for a sitcom. Like I want to be staffed on like a, a series. So I haven't done that. I've done freelance writing, like things that I have written have been filmed for television or for something, but I would like to be staffed and be in a room and have that experience. And I post perfectly post-pandemic so I can actually be physically in the room with other people riffing and joking and yeah. stuff and yeah. ordering lunch and goofing off, that kind of thing. I, I know I don't have that experience. I like to have that.
2: Mostly it's about the lunch, huh? <laughs> <laughs>
1: I've heard that before. <laughs> Do you have a specific show you'd like to write for?
0: Right now, I think the show that I most want to write for is probably Mythic Quest, because I just binged it recently on Apple mm-hmm. and I like fell in love Hell with it. Yeah. So that show would it's be great. So yeah, good. it's so good, and it's so right in my wheelhouse. But yeah, I think I think there's a show on that, or what we do in the Shadows. But those are like also two shows that I'm sure have a million spec scripts for them right now out there. So who knows? But those yeah. are two shows. But there's a lot. I mean, I would be more than happy to write for for another show that doesn't exist yet that has that that mentality. Or I would love to write for almost anything Michael Shore uh, produces because I love so much of what like I love Brooklyn Nine Nine and and Parks and Rec and those kinds of things so I would love to do that kind of show and and the good the good place.
1: Mm. Who is a like who's a friend in comedy or somebody you want to hype up? Uh, somebody that we should maybe interview? Any of the above?
0: Have you already had Vanessa Guerrero on? No.
1: no,
2: but she's on
0: our okay, list. Yeah, uh, I love Vanessa, yeah. she's awesome. Vanessa is amazing, yeah. and she's just she just has such a great view on the world, and she just she's yes. someone who owns her weirdness in a way that I absolutely adore. So, yeah, Vanessa's mm-hmm. like my go to person, recommend for anything,
2: yes. I got some free plates from her recently, and they're my favorite. Yeah, <laughs> great. She's, she's great. She's like
0: my like my surrogate oh. little sister in comedy. So oh,
2: I love that. Yeah, love her. Oh,
0: and of yeah. course, any of the Ripleys as well. I think any of the Ripleys you yes. should probably probably uh, prop them up as well.
2: Yes, <laughs> big fan of Aliza. As oh, well. Aliza amazing. Aliza Pearl. Yeah. Aliza, yeah. Um, and finally, our last question is. Uh, what advice do you have for people who are either just starting out or, or in comedy?
0: Quit. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think my advice is to just really follow your passion. I think that like I said earlier, I think that there's ways to pursue a career in comedy that might pay off financially someday, but you'll be miserable the whole time you're doing it. So I I really think that Even though you might struggle with money sometimes and you might feel like you're not doing anything. It's like this is a great example of me being on this show and you telling me that my career is so impressive to you. Because I think just earlier today, I was telling a friend how I feel so behind in life. So a lot of times like things might feel like downcast to you, but somebody else is looking at you going, This is you're killing it. What are you talking about? So I think that I think that at the end of the day you really have to do what you have a fire for and what you're excited to do because if you're miserable most of your life you have nothing to show for it but that misery even if you succeed. So just like do what like, I'm not saying don't work hard and don't like, and don't, like, like mm-hmm. cry for things and like don't occasionally like I'm not saying like if it never feels good never do it. Like there are going to be times in this business where it sucks It it's just to like you will eat it a lot learning what you're doing but like Recognize difference between like, I'm still getting better at this versus I'm absolutely miserable right now. And I, I think look at those and figure out who you are. And I and I think really be authentic to your own voice. I never really worry about someone stealing my material when I was starting out or like moving on because I was like, nobody will tell me how to tell my jokes how I tell them. Like mm-hmm. if the more personal and the more authentic you are, even if somebody steals from you, they're not going to sound like you and they're not going to feel real. They're, they're going to do their version of those things. But yeah, I think I think that being your most authentic self is pretty much the, the package I would put all that advice into, because I think that if you follow the path that makes you the most passionate and you also create the work that reflects you the most as you are as a person, like you're both of those things are being your authentic self and they'll coil together. And I think you'll just be more satisfied with what you're doing over over time.
2: That is incredible advice.
1: Yeah. And it's advice that I just, I feel like this like theme like kind of thematically runs for the interview. You, you talked about, you know, just changing course a few times in your life. And it was always about staying true to yourself and what felt right for you. And it feels like you're really living your truth. And it's, it makes your comedy just so amazing. Thank you yeah
2: thank you thank you for coming on um uh, like we said earlier we can uh you can see uh, listeners you can see a uh, celebrity D which dropped on nerdist uh this week and uh is there anything else coming up that you would like for people to check out
0: yeah so uh, ripley improv is always worth checking out uh on our youtube channel and also we have a twitch channel uh, twitch.tv slash ripley improv we're in between shows right now, but we have our a second season of a show we did called Heartbeats that's coming up in September. And Heartbeats is a fully improvised medical drama. So it's a hospital drama, soap opera, improvised show. And I joined the cast late in season one playing the trans sister of the main character, which is really fun. Um, but then also the show we did right after Heartbeats first season that just wrapped its first season is a show called Slay that Eliza Pearl created. And the premise of Slay is that we are all monster hunters and we're in a debriefing after a mission. And over the course of an episode, we will improvise and design a monster together and bring up like the case of what this monster was. And it was a really fascinating show, and Eliza did a lot of work with us ahead of time to make sure that we weren't digging into common problematic tropes of monster stories and like really understand like what we were creating as monsters and like how we defined a monster and like what made us scared and how that would build into what the monsters we created were and what their purpose was. So it was really fun. And we had some really interesting plot things that shaped up over the course of that first season. So that, that show and the first season of heartbeats can be watched in their entirety, both on our Twitch channel and on our YouTube. So I highly recommend checking both those out, Heartbeats and Slay. So and then prep up for Heartbeat Season 2. Awesome.
2: I guess. Well, thank
0: you again for joining us.
1: Yeah, Riley, thank you so much for being here. It was awesome to have you. I appreciate you making time for us and for joining us this evening. It's very cool.
0: Thank you.
1: Thank you, Riley, again so much for joining us today. It was so awesome to have her.
2: If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to follow us on all the social medias. Like us, subscribe us, rate us, and review us.
1: Review us for that raffle. Yeah. And if you want to support us and the network that we're on, which highlights underrepresented voices in podcasting, you can check out our Patreon, which we're going to take a moment to tell you about right now. Uh, Yes,
2: we are the Period Podcast Network. We are a network made by She's and They's for everyone. And it's really cool. We're all working together. And the concept behind our network is that everybody, every single podcast that's on the network, we all kind of get paid the same. We are all working together to build up uh, build up each podcast, like high tides, raise all ships. Uh, but We need your support in order to do that. (laughs) Kate, tell us a little bit about some of the podcasts that you can see on the Period Podcast
1: Network. Oh, my gosh. Just so many great podcasts, starting with Tinseltown Tea, which is a movie review and Hollywood gossip podcast. There's Comadresi Comics, which is a podcast that highlights the Latinx community in comic book culture. There's Yes, a Stripper, a podcast about strippers and sex workers in interviews with people in those industries and their allies. There's Girl Boner, which is a health and sexuality and empowerment podcast. Elaine's Cooking for the Soul, which is a post-apocalyptic cooking podcast hosted in a dentist's office.
2: Yes, it's very exciting. And we have a Patreon. Uh, We'd love... to see your support, if we could, because uh, you know the best way to support is not only just to listen and to appreciate and share, but also you know share some of the dollar dollar if you got it, and our price is not high. For five dollars a month, you can get um ex- uh, you get an exclusive zine that is created by all of the uh all of the participants on the network. Uh, we're creating some really cool artwork, some articles, some poetry. It's really really neat, and then at ten dollars a month, you can uh, you'll get exclusive bonus content from each of the uh, each of the podcasts. Uh, it's very exciting. There's also a bigger option for like a group Zoom that's like twenty dollars, and we highly suggest that because we're all very fun people. So check it out if you support uh, marginalized voices in podcasting. If you feel like there should be more of them, which you should, guilt, 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 uh, check out all of the podcasts on the network. You can go to periodpodcastnetwork.com. You can also find a link to our Patreon,